Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, an archive of Robert Lewis's sermons while at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you are encouraged and deepen in your love of Christ while enjoying this podcast. Here is this week's message. The passage we're going to look at in Mark, uh, Luke chapter 9 concerns discipleship, and to help us, we want to set forth two polarities from the start. One phrase you might write on the left-hand side would be this, to know about. Just write the words to know about. And on the other side, write the phrase to have experience in. To know about, to have experience in. Two short phrases, but two totally different worlds. And we want to talk about that this morning. You know, yesterday at the uh, Arkansas SMU football game, <laughs> as I sat in the stands and, uh, and watched, I remember at one particular time, a fan yelled out, good grief, where's the linebacker? And uh, I thought to myself, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that was true. Where was he? A long run was made, and, and I looked over at the fan, and I thought to myself, you know, there are probably thousands of people here in the stands who at least have a, a basic knowledge of football, and uh, probably this fan knows about linebackers, okay? And knows that there was a hole there that that guy should have been at. But you know, as an old, beat-up former linebacker, uh, I had a different experience, as I'm sure maybe some of you have had if you've had the experience of playing in that position. You see, I know what it's like to be down on the field with 55 or 60,000 people there screaming, and you're lined up against this mad dog right guard, okay? And you're looking at him, and suddenly in a moment, when the ball is snapped, he blocks out rather than coming at you. And you're standing there in this split second all alone. And you see the back back there about to get the ball, and you have to go through some mental arrangements at that moment of saying, well, if it is a trap play, I need to step up in the hole. Because if I do, I'll meet the back. But what if he fakes to the back and goes back to throw a pass, then instead of stepping up, I need to rush back into my hook zone so I can be there to cover for the pass. All that's taking place in a split second. And he who hesitates is lost. <laughs> and there have been many times that I've sat there and seen the guard block out, and I know that they're not giving me any time off, that there's somebody out there looking for me but where is he? <laughs> and I've not stepped up, and then I have felt the entire right side of my body caving in as the tackle traps me because it's a trap play. I bear a lot of scars on my chin from that in that moment. There's a lot of guys who one moment saw the back, and the next moment saw the trainer holding up three fingers and saying, how many? <laughs> and so when that guy says, where's the linebacker? I know where the linebacker is. I've been there. I've had the experience, not just knowing about. Recently, my wife and I saw the uh, movie, A River Runs Through It, about fly fishing. And if you saw that, it begins and ends with this older gentleman tying a fly onto his line. Now, as I sat there and looked at my wife, who's never really been fly fishing in her life, I thought, now, we're having two 
different understandings of what's taking place here. She's seeing a guy tie a fly on the end of a line, kind of like you'd tie your shoe. But I know that's not true, because I've been fly fishing. And I know what it feels like to stand out in that creek with it 20 degrees and your fingers numb if you've never done it before. And get that little tiny fly and try to tie it. And the very first time I did, I felt like I had big gloves on. You know, you just felt so awkward. And you felt like every fly fisherman up and down the stream was going <laughs> and pointing at you. Because there's an art to doing that. You see, it's one thing to know about something. It's a totally different thing to have experience in that something. That's what we want to look at this morning. Because you know what? Jesus knew the importance of experiential Christianity. And in our passage in Luke chapter 9, we find Jesus moving His disciples out of the stands and moving those disciples onto the playing field. Look with me in the first few verses of chapter 9 and we'll see that. And He called the twelve together and He gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. And then He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. And He said to them, take nothing for your journey, neither a staff, nor a bag, nor bread, nor money. Don't even take two tunics apiece. And whatever house you enter, stay there. And take your leave from there. And as for those who do not receive you, as you go out from that city, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Now believe it or not, when we come to the start of chapter 9, we're about to end Jesus' three years of public ministry. Just to give you a place, a timeline of where we are in this Gospel of Luke. Now, anybody who turns over knows that we're only a third of the way through. They're saying, we're about to end? Yeah, we're about at the end. What will take place after the close of chapter 9 is you'll see Jesus withdraw from public ministry more into His disciples to spend time with them as they move from Galilee down to Jerusalem for His future crucifixion. He's made three tours of Galilee. The first that He made we saw earlier in the beginning of Luke where He toured and at the end of that tour He chose these twelve disciples that they might be with Him. Second tour, He took them everywhere He went. Gave them all of the information up close and personal as He shared His ministry and His life with them. And now we are starting the last tour around Galilee. Except this time, Jesus and the apostles split up. And that's where we are as we come to chapter 9. It captures their first solo flight, if you will, into public ministry. Now, it's not exactly solo. According to Mark's Gospel, each of the disciples uh, paired up with another disciple. So there's these six groups of disciples, these six couples going out around the countryside to proclaim that the kingdom of God is near. Now, I want you to know, though it doesn't tell us, most scholars believe they're not just going off on a weekend hiatus. Uh, they're probably going off for months by themselves to proclaim the kingdom of God. And according to verse 3, if you'll look there, they could take a buddy, but they couldn't take anything else. They couldn't take a staff for protection. Notice they couldn't take a bag for some extras. They couldn't take any money. They couldn't take any food. Not even, if you'll notice at the end, could they take a change of clothes. <laughs> take nothing with you, Jesus said can't help but think when I read those words that they were the same words that Jesus Himself heard years earlier when He stood 
at heaven's gate looking down on earth before His incarnation. And His heavenly Father, before He's about to take that long leap to planet earth, turned to Jesus and said the same thing. Take nothing with you. Nothing. Not your divine powers. Nothing. And according to Paul, as he thinks and reflects on that moment in Philippians 2, it says at that moment before Jesus moved to earth, it says in these incredible theological words, He emptied Himself. Took nothing with Him to earth but faith. And now He sends these men out empty-handed as well for a similar faith experience. Think they were scared? Think that it was a petrifying experience to move from the world of knowing about a ministry and going out and experiencing that ministry firsthand? You better believe it was petrifying. I never will forget when Dennis Rainey and I were in Seoul, Korea. We got an opportunity to go there and do a family life conference right before the Olympic Games. We did it through interpreters and after the conference was over, we got an opportunity to go out and have lunch with uh, Dr. Kim, who was the National Director of Korea for Campus Crusade for Christ. And uh, he told us that uh, when the college students came back to Seoul for the summer, they would go through a week of training in the training center there in Seoul. And then, according to the prescription here in Luke chapter 9, they would go out and fan out all the way across Korea with nothing but the clothes on their back. Now I can remember going on some trips to Daytona Beach and places like that with Campus Crusade when they put us up in a hotel and take care of us and we'd go out and share for a couple hours on the beach. But this was radical. To go out all summer with nothing. And I said to Dr. Kim, I said, I bet they're scared when they do that. And he said, they are. But when they come back at the end of the summer, they understand they have experienced how sufficient and how big their God is. Well, there's that word experience again. You see, it's one world watching Jesus preach the kingdom, confront Pharisees and unbelievers, heal people of all kinds of, of, of diseases. It's another world altogether going out and being on the line for doing it yourself. But these men went, and according to verse 6, they had results. If you'll look there, it says, in departing, they began going about among the villages. Now this is for months, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now, there are no statistics given on how many people responded to their message. Uh, there's no statistics about how many people were healed. But we do know from the verses that follow, verses 7 through 9, that evidently their campaign out among the people and in the villages and in the cities was a successful one because in an indirect fashion we see their success presented to us from the eyes of a king, the ruler of Israel, King Herod. Look at verse 7. It says, Now Herod, the Tetrarch, he's the ruler over Israel, heard of all that was happening. I mean, it got to the highest echelons of government. <laughs> And he was greatly perplexed because remember, he had, he had executed John the Baptist. He thought he had, he had finished out this movement, this grassroots movement. But instead, now he's hearing reports from all over his kingdom, it says. 
And he was greatly perplexed because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead and by others that Elijah had appeared and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen again. And Herod said, I myself had John beheaded. Who is this man about whom I hear such things? And he kept trying to see him. Now, in saying that, what we begin to see is how much impact these men had. How much impact these men had as they went out and experienced Christianity firsthand. You know, I want you to look on your outlines. There are two values in experiential Christianity that not just applies then, it applies in our day as well. Let me fill in the blanks for you. The first is this. There is a, the first value is there is a realized, not theoretical understanding of the power of God's Word. There is a realized, not theoretical understanding of the power of God's Word. Remember, knowing about something and having an experience with something, it's totally different. And these disciples were never the same. You know that if you're a parent, your child comes home one day and asks you to help them with their algebra. You knew algebra once, remember? <laughs> or maybe they asked you to help them with uh, verbs and conjugations of verbs and an adverb and an adjective. Remember that word, participle? You knew about that once, but it's so easy to forget the things that you know about. But let me tell you what you don't forget. You don't forget experiences, do you? fact is, we could circle up and start telling stories that many of us could recount, even back to four and five years old, that fishing experience we had with our family, or that vacation we took to Florida. See, we remember experiences. Or that special Christmas when both grandparents were there. We remember experiences. You think these guys never forgot, ever forgot going out in this initial foray to preach the kingdom? No. They never forgot it. It was life-changing for them because the ideas that they had been hearing that could have easily been so forgotten were now not just ideas. They were real. Like the Velveteen Rabbit became real. These ideas became real because they became experiential. Let me ask you, because I think it's a fair question to ask at this point, how real is your Christianity? Is it experiential? Have you experienced an answer to prayer where you really went to God and asked specifically for something and you received it? Have you experienced the leading of the Holy Spirit or is that just a theological construct? Have you experienced a victory over sin? Something that has nagged you, but as you have approached Christ and as you have worked through with Him this issue, there has come a place where that has ceased to be a nagging thorn in your side? Have you experienced faith that brought results? Have you experienced leading your family spiritually or working through a problem or a confrontation with another Christian biblically? Have you experienced going to someone and asking them for forgiveness of sin because you know there's a stumbling block between you? And rather than just know about it, you did something about it, and after you did it, you experienced the kingdom of God. That been true of you? Have you experienced taking risk for the gospel? Have you experienced true and real Christian fellowship? 
See, there's a difference between knowing about these things in churches all across America and actually experiencing the life change of those very same things. You know, in community groups, we have been going through a series called Run to Win and learning how to address problematic issues of our lives with biblical truths and spiritual disciplines. And as I've talked to people, as this series began, everyone has enjoyed the rich truth that's within that study. But now we've come to a point in the study where it turns into our life, right? We've come to a place where we have to be honest and transparent with the group and talk to the group about an issue that we've selected, that we want the group's fellowship and help with, and we want to apply those disciplines to so that we can actually go from knowing this is a problem to experiencing deliverance from that very same problem. And though people are excited about the information, as I've talked to people, some have come to this point and now they want to balk. It's uncomfortable. I don't know if I want to talk about this, this issue. I, I don't know if I want to think through what are the problematic things I need to change. And now there's resistance. You know why there's resistance? Because it is touching the very core of the issue I'm talking about today. You're feeling pulled out of a very comfortable world of information only and into a not-so-comfortable world of experience. Laying it out there. Looking for the kingdom of God to be real, not just theoretical. Can I encourage you at this point? Don't hold back. Don't hold back in your group. Can I encourage you to go for it? to move out of the ivory tower kind of academic understanding of the Christian faith and move into an experience to get out of that world that so many Christians hide behind, more Bible, more Bible, more Bible, as they move ever so closely, as so much of evangelicalism does, to a neo-Pharisaism of splitting hairs but not changing lives. Can I encourage you to do that? and experience what you've all along talked about? That would be a wonderful application to this pretext. It will challenge you. But let me tell you, it's supposed to challenge you. It's supposed to be uncomfortable, but it is an experience, and on the other side is a thrill. The value of experiential Christianity is realized, not theoretical understanding, of the power of God's Word. There's a second thing that it does too. There's always a cultural impact when Christians become experiential. A cultural impact. That's what you see here. The whole nation's kind of shaking. You know, we have gone through some troubled times. There's a change in government. There's a change in a new decade. There's a coming new century before us and people are feeling destabilized in this transition that's going on. Some Christians are wringing their hands saying, What's going to happen to us? I've talked to people who feel oppressed by the circumstances of our day. Moral issues. You know, feel like maybe, maybe we're going to be legislated against. Can I, can I tell you something that I see throughout all of history since the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Christianity will always survive nations and governments and legislation. There is ruins of all kinds of kingdoms that people just dig up today that Christianity went right through. And it's the same today. But what it requires, if our 
culture is going to change, it's going to require Christians moving from an understanding to an experience of the gospel and of its truth in their marriages, in their morals, in their parenting styles, in their work ethic, in their spiritual gifts, in their sexuality, in every area of sin in general. It cannot be a head trip. It's got to be an experience. You know why? Because it's experience that counts. When Jesus came to give the abundant life, He didn't ask you to analyze it 45 different ways. He came to give an abundant life for you to experience in your everyday life. And when you do that, when you do your part in that, the cultural landscape, regardless of what's taking place in the media, in the movies, in literature, in the arts, in government, in education, regardless, this culture will begin to change, and shake and quake, just like here in Luke 9, because cultural change does not so much depend on who's in power as it does whose beliefs are being radically lived out. Now let's look at the key principle behind this experiential Christianity. It's found in the verses that follow that you know as the story of the feeding of the 5,000, but there's an important principle that's embedded in these events surrounding this feeding, this miracle. Verse 12 says, And the day began to decline, and the twelve came and said to Jesus, Send the multitude away, that they may go into the surrounding villages and countryside and find lodging and get something to eat. For here we are in a desolate place. But He said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said to Him, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless perhaps we go and buy food at Megamart for all these people. <laughs> Notice the problem. It's the problem the church has today. Here's the problem. These guys are looking at overwhelming needs. And they are in a desolate place. Just like the Christian church, as it looks at the landscape it lives in and the culture of our day, looks at a desolate culture becoming more barren every day. And at the same time, all the casualties of that culture, which are overwhelming needs, and it wants to look at it and go, what can we possibly do? And Jesus says, feed them. <laughs> and the disciples, like the pastor, say, how? It's impossible. There are too many of them. I mean, look at verse 14. He says, there are 5,000, notice the word men, signaling out men here not even talking about their families, their wives. Maybe there's 15, 20,000 people around these people. It wasn't real easy for these disciples as they express here to become paralyzed by the immensity of this project. To want to shut down, to give up with eyes fixated horizontally on the immense needs rather than fixating their eyes on the One who gave the order, feed them. All this John's Gospel tells us uh, in John's Gospel about the same event. He says that Jesus was testing them because He wanted to teach them an important principle, a principle that later in the years to come would steady these disciples, give them solid feet to stand on as they would go out to an immense empire hostile against them and conquer it with the Gospel. And for them, give them wonderful spiritual experiences. That's what is going to happen here. Look at verse 14. 
He said to the disciples, have them recline to eat in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and He had all of them recline. And He took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, He blessed them, and He broke them, and He kept giving them to the disciples to set before the multitudes. And they all ate, and they were all satisfied. And the broken pieces which they had left over were picked up, twelve baskets full. Now I want to extract the principle I was telling you about, about experiential Christianity. It's there. I want you to see it. If you look, I'm going to go through it real quickly and you'll see it. You might even underline the words that give it away. We're going to decode this passage and then I'll go back through it again for you. But first of all, look at verse 13. You might underline the words, we have no more than this. See, you start in experiential Christianity of noticing how inadequate you are. Lord, this is all I got. Doesn't look like much. Doesn't look like it can do much. Then you move to verse 16 where... They gave it to God, and He took it, and He blessed it. See, we take our inadequacies, our limitations, our limited abilities, and rather than go to work and think we can get it done and work even harder with what little we have, the starting place of experiential Christianity is to take your limitations and offer them up to God. Say, this is all I've got. And have Him bless it. And then notice at the end of verse 16, then what He'll do is He'll give you those abilities right back. But they'll be different because they'll come back with His blessing. And when they come back, then He'll ask you to go out and share. Notice, that's what happens. Jesus gave them the fish and the loaves and they were the distributors and they went out and kept giving and giving and giving. And here's what it resulted in. Verse 17, notice, they all ate and were satisfied. What these guys got was an extremely satisfying spiritual experience they could have never thought would have happened when they first, way back there, looked at their limitations. But not only did they get a satisfying spiritual experience that blessed them and others, but notice at the end of verse 17, they got an abundant personal return. You see it there? They picked up how many baskets? How many? How many disciples? Guess what each one got? a whole basket full to remind them of this principle of experiential Christianity. You know, that takes place in every area of life. This is the key spiritual principle. It takes place in everything. Do you think sometimes that Bill and myself and Bill and Rich and Craig and others, when we're looking over a text, it comes Saturday, and we're looking at that text going, good night, there are going to be thousands there tomorrow, and i got nothing you think we don't go to God and say, Lord, this is all I got. Would you bless this? And what does He do? Does He preach? No. He sends us up into the pulpit to do it, but now it comes back differently. And there are many times that I want you to know that I thought when I walked up here, boy, I just want to get this over with. Now, I'm giving you some inside scoop of pastors. Okay? okay? Don't get nervous about it, but I just want to tell you, you think, there's not going to be much here. And then you step out of the pulpit and people come down and people call you for weeks, and people go out and implement, and you go home, and you know what you say? Man, I did a great job. <laughs> no, you go home, and I'll promise you, I've been here many times, I'll sit down in the quiet of my bedroom and look out the window, and I'll say, thank you. Thank you for being with me and blessing me. They all ate and were satisfied, and I got a basket full to take home. Did you know that happens for a husband who thinks, this is all I got? 
or a wife or a parent who's never seen good parenting before and they come to the Lord and they say, this is all I got. Or an employee or a community group leader. I've never taught before. What do I do with these people? Or a learning center teacher or somebody who sees sin around them and they say, that's not right, but who am I? Or called to some ministry? Think about those things. Do you start going, yeah, I've got it all together. <laughs> no, you always start in the same place. You always will start in the same place. And that place is, I can't do this. And the Scripture tells us that. We can't. But here's the process. We take what we have, we offer it to God. He takes it. He blesses it. Gives it back to us. We then go forth and give. And as we do, people are experiencing the kingdom of God and we have a rich personal return in our life that the Scriptures call the abundant life. It's a key principle to experiential Christianity. God's not asking us to be adequate. He's asking us to take those inadequacies and give them to Him for His empowerment so that He might demonstrate His power in us and give us a blue-chip spiritual experience back. Richard Rochelle reminded us last week that there's a desolate world out there. People who are dying for some inkling of light on life. And we're around them. And it's really easy to sit there paralyzed for fear of rejection or for fear we don't meet the standards and to watch them die needlessly when we could instead offer our inadequacies to Him and go for it and then see Him do what that gentleman did for Him when He was in the car and He said, Richard, let me just tell you about where it's at. And then get not only satisfaction in that rich experience, but to have Richard stand up and say, my whole life is different. <laughs> you know, the first time I went out and shared my faith, I didn't know what I was hardly doing. I just knew I was a Christian. And I talked to a tennis player at the University of Arkansas, and he thought I was nuts. And I left, but after I left, he prayed to receive Christ. Then when his tennis friend came in, he led him to Christ the next week. And you know, when I went to seminary, both those guys went with me. One's a pastor now in Atlanta, another in Palm Springs, California. A rich spiritual return. That's what that is. And that's what Jesus is asking for us. There's a difference between knowing about stuff and experiencing the life that's in Christ. This is the principle behind experiential Christianity. But you know, there's some right stuff about experiential Christianity as well. We're not talking now about a principle. We're talking about what goes on in our heart. And that's what's in verses 18 through 27 is all about. The right stuff. Let me read it for you. Verse 18. And it came about that while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he questioned them saying, Who do the multitudes say that I am? And they answered wrongly and said, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others, the one of the prophets, one of the prophets of old has risen again. And he said to them, with a very soul-searching question and penetrating eyes, but who do you say that I am? I read this week an article in the Kansas City Star that the Girl Scouts were doing some soul-searching as well. It read like this, after 80 years of promising to serve God in their oath, the Girl Scouts may be in for some soul-searching of their own. Who is God? 
Are we really serving God? They question. Options discussed on a national level include changing the oath's wording from God, capital G, to God, little g, or even God's. What's a changing sign of the times, isn't it? And I'm sure the Girl Scouts are in for a lively discussion, and I don't know how they'll conclude, but eventually they will conclude. And you know, these men have been with Jesus for almost three years now, and Jesus used this moment to bring them to a conclusion with a soul-searching question. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that He is? It's the most important question you will ever be asked because if the Bible declares anything from Genesis to Revelation, it shouts forth that you can't be right with God and wrong about Jesus. Now, Peter answered the question right, didn't he? He said, you are the Christ of God. I wish I could go into that more, but this was not Peter kind of with his academic hat on saying, well, you know, we've looked at you and we've looked at Isaiah and Daniel and those kind of things, and well, evidently you're the Christ of God. That's not what's going on here. What is going on here, if I could present it, is a tidal wave of history coming forward in a moment. And in that is Isaiah, and is Jeremiah, and is the Psalms, and all that, and all the rich Jewish culture, and all the expectations, and all the longing for a Messiah. And in this moment, it comes crashing down on one man's words. You're the Christ! And his answer was deeply personal. It wasn't academic. It wasn't intellectual. It was penetrated from the heart. And he could never be the same in saying it that way either. You know why? Because if the Bible declares anything else, it declares this principle as well. You cannot be right about Jesus Christ in your answer and remain the same. You can't do it. You can answer it intellectually and stay the same. It can be something that you look at from a shallow kind of conviction and stay the same. But you can't enter into it the way Peter entered into it, deeply personal and experiential and ever remain the same if Jesus is really who He said He is. That's what's taking place here. So having the right stuff to be an experiential Christian, one doesn't just know about Jesus, but experiences Jesus as the God of heaven and earth, the Savior of the world, the Lord of life. It starts with this right answer that's deeply personal. And then if you'll notice on your outline, this experiential life unfolds over time along some very well-defined, I've called them rails here because I've got a train track illustration. I'm going to let you fill in in a moment. But first I want you to look at Jesus' words starting in verse 23. He says this as He goes on. Okay, you got the right answer, but that's not all there is to the Christian life. Now I'm going to tell you how it unfolds for a lifetime. And what he's going to say is right stuff, but as I told the congregation earlier in the first service, well, these words are tough stuff too. They really are. Kind of make me want to draw back a little bit. Look at verse 23. He was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Notice what it doesn't say. Can I read it? You look at the text and let me read it a different way. To be an experiential Christian, Jesus doesn't say, if 
anyone wishes to come after me, let him have a seminary education. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him come from a stable two-parent home. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him be drug-free, alcohol-free. Let him have a good reputation. If anyone comes after me, let him be a heterosexual. Or let him be married only one time. <laughs> Doesn't say any of that, does it? It says this, if anyone comes after me, I'm going to ask you to do something even harder than those things. Let him deny himself. Say no to himself. Put another way, let him set himself in such a way that he will say no to everything in his life, all his life, that doesn't please Jesus. That's what he's saying here. It's tough stuff, isn't it? I kind of want to wince a little bit. And notice, it gets tougher still because he's not asking you to do that by walking the aisle and making a one-time commitment. Do you see the words that leap off the page? I'd, I would have capitalized them if I was Luke. It's the word daily. Every day. Say no. To get that principle pictured, he gives a word picture. It's the first time he uses it here. He, in kind of a foretaste of what is to come, he says, let him take up his cross. Now, when this concept gets introduced, I want you to know it would have been a repugnant symbol for these disciples. Now, when you look up at this cross, grace with that beautiful drape, you know, the cross today has a, almost a pleasing appeal to it. Uh, women wear a cross around their neck. Some guys wear a cross in their ear, you know. But it's kind of a symbol of something that's more positive, uh, something that has, has made a difference in the world. But when Jesus introduces this concept here, you would have been kind of repulsed. Take up your cross. That was a one-way ticket to hell. You might get a better feel if I read the passage this way to bring it up to date, 20th century. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and sit in his electric chair. Fry. I mean, what would it look like if a young lady came up to you men and she had around her neck a gold electric chair? Would you kind of go, man. <laughs> would you want to draw back? That's what these guys wanted to do. They wanted to draw back. That was repulsive to think that he was asking them this kind of depth of denial. But the point is this. You cannot move into the realm of spiritual power, of experiential, authentic, experiential Christianity without dying every day to you. Look at verses 24 and 25. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Can you think of any words more radical to our age than these words? Really? When God in our day is spelled M-E, me and my rights, me on my terms, me with my needs first and foremost, me with every desire floating around inside my heart, my personally entitled rights to express. Actress Shirley MacLaine, uh, 
She goes by Shirley in this life. I'm not sure what her name is in previous ones, but in this life, in a recent Washington Post interview, stated it about as well as anyone about the age in which we live. She says the most pleasurable journey you take in this life is through yourself. The only sustaining love involvement you have in this life is with yourself. When you look back at your life and your work and your love affairs, your marriages, your children, your pain, your happiness, when you examine all that closely, what you really find out is that the only person you really went to bed with is yourself. The only thing you really have is working to the consummation of your own identity. And that's what I've been doing all my life. Several years ago when I went to visit Martha out in California, we were having supper and she told me about a couple who moved in together. They had it all, good jobs, made a lot of money. Remember that story? And they built this nice house and uh, uh, didn't have a lot of friends. Of course, no pets, no children. That's just distractions in life. Uh, went out with a few friends, but mostly using them for their own experiences, traveled a lot, worked on their bodies all the time, uh, bought expensive clothes, expensive cars and whatever, and then one day they were found in a uh, dual suicide with the note, we had a great time and we did it all. There was simply nothing left for us to enjoy. Well, that's this way of life, the me principle taken to its logical end. It is not just denial of self that Jesus is calling for. It's also a personal embrace of a new direction. He states it negatively in verse 26. I'm going to turn it around and reread it after I read it the first time for you. But it goes like this. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory at the consummation of history and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Uh, stated positively, it would read this way. For whoever personally embraces me and my words. He personally embraces them, lives by them. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, He will personally embrace that person. It'll be a celebration. You know, there's a day in which history culminates. It's called glory. People from all cultures and all previous periods live with the future in mind. Because history will consummate not in meaninglessness, but in Jesus Christ, Savior and Lord. That's where it will consummate. Now look at the diagram there, and let me just fill it in for you, because I want to give you a mental picture you can leave here with and go with during the week. I, I used a railroad track because it made me think about life. And the cross ties that go across this way, you might just label them life's issues. And there are a lot of issues in life, aren't there? No matter where you are, maybe you're just a new married couple, maybe you just got children, maybe your kids are leaving home from college, maybe you're facing retirement. But as you know, that train track will always have issues. There's not a time where the issues stop. And so you can drive you, the train, without rails over those cross ties. Okay, if you want to live that way. Now it makes for kind of a bumpy ride. Might have been fun at first, might have got a few thrills, you know, really, you know, putting on the the accelerator and going over so those cross ties, but you know after a while, when life just keeps being bumpy, it gets old, doesn't it? it? Gets wearisome. And you wear out. 
And a lot of people live that way, and as they move into midlife and beyond, their train gets worn out. Sometimes it runs off the tracks altogether. Life's always going to have issues. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, but I'd like to lay down some rails for you. And that's what's next. You might label that one rail being no to self. That's one rail. The other rail is yes to God and His Word. He wants to lay those rails down over those life issues. You're still going to go places, but it takes a lot of the bump and the grind out of life. It's still going to be an experience, but what a much more pleasurable, experiential experience it's going to be than dealing with all those bumps. And that's what he's talking about. These well-defined truths that he's given us and saying it works. But not only does it work, you know when you stand on a railroad track and you look out, have you ever noticed how the tracks come together out there? You know, they finally, those two, two things go together. They don't look parallel, they come together. Out there at the end, you might just write the words, glory. Because there's going to come a day, and this is what all the Scripture declares, where history ends for a new beginning, but it ends. And where it ends, the saint that finishes saying no to self, yes to God and His Word, he ends up into the arms of a Savior that stands at the end who wants to party with him. That's really what it's describing here. Glory, where this saint, this man or this woman is rewarded for their faith effort. They were rewarded during this life. They had rich spiritual experiences and abundant spiritual return. But that's not the end. At the end is Jesus who then rewards and celebrates His faithfulness or her faithfulness, who parties with them, who enjoys that and releases them into the new age with new positions and new titles and new responsibilities and eternal life. You can get your train and you can ride it over the cross ties, or you can ride it over the rails. That's your choice. That's every man and every woman's choice. Look at the end, verse 27. But I say to you truthfully, and anytime Jesus uses the word truthfully or verily, verily, He's really trying to reinforce a point. He says, there are some of those standing here who shall not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. In other words, they'll not physically die until they see. The Greek word there, idon, is really the Greek word see, meaning they will experience the kingdom of God. I think that if you look at the verses that follow, starting in verses 28 and following, you'll notice that the transfiguration will occur. And I think that the proper interpretation here is that some, not all of the disciples, but some of the disciples, three as a matter of fact, will have the privilege of seeing Jesus prefigured in His glory through a transfiguration. They'll get that opportunity to see the kingdom of God before they die in its glory. But here's the words I want you to see in that text, verse 27. Some. Some. Not all. All twelve didn't see it. Just some. And I think that's there because there's a great application. Here we are in this great congregation. Life's ahead of us. Can you see it, those tracks? All life's issues. And here's what I want you to know truthfully. Some, not all, some here, before they taste physical death, some of us here will experience 
the kingdom of God. We won't just know about it. It won't be a creed we acknowledge. It'll be at points a life that we have experienced. How much and how often is determined by whether we have the right stuff. How deeply and personally we answer the who do you say that I am question. And how radically we adhere to these two well-defined rails through life which says no to ourself and yes to God and the directives of His Word. Can you see it? Over here is a world to know about. And over here is a wholly different universe to have experience in. Oh, wouldn't it be great to finish out your Christian faith at the end of your life not saying, sounded good, but instead, it was good. Let's pray together. And let me ask you to close your eyes and bow your heads because I must ask this question to you. And it's one you can deliberate on and respond to God with, and it's this. Would you be willing in this hour, on this day, to commit yourself to this lifestyle that Jesus has declared to you? Would you be willing to commit for a lifetime the pursuit of saying no to self and yes to Him? It will require effort. It will require honesty. It will require perseverance and certainly a knowledge of His Word. But it will be an experience. And a joyful one at that. One that not only brings satisfaction, but an abundant personal return, not only in this life, but in the life to come. I have issued the question. But only to God can you give the answer. Father, we thank You for this radical truth. Jesus certainly was a revolutionary of the greatest kind. But He has spoken to us truthfully. I pray that we might be a people who don't just know about You, know things You did do or have done, but our life might be rich with the experience of the Kingdom of God. We pray for Your glory and ours. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.